Welcome to The Sustainable Life. This is Joshua Spodek. I'm here with Nate Hockman. How are you doing, Nate? I'm good, Josh. Thanks for having me. Thanks for being here. And so the listeners know, I first saw you speak at the Citizens Climate Lobby, and it was the, what was the right word? It was the conserv- how to reach conservatives was, I think, the yeah. name of the session. That's right. Yeah. And I'm a conservative outreach fellow for the Citizens Climate Lobby, which means that my preeminent job basically is to is to help CCL expand their bipartisan appeal to more conservative communities. So yeah, the specific event you're talking about, I was teaching a lot of folks at CCL what I had learned doing that and how they might sort of expand their appeal to folks on the right who obviously traditionally are, are less interested in the idea of climate change as a problem than uh, progressives are. And it's not something that you just started. One of the things they talked about there, and I'll put a link to in the notes, was your article towards a new conservative environmentalism in National Review. Was that like a, that's not like a magnum opus, but it's uh, that was a fairly comprehensive piece, I thought. Yeah. And it must have, I imagine it took you a long time and put a lot of attention to it. And I'm curious what led to it. How was it received, either, both professionally within the, the magazine or uh, the periodical, and then from its readers? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, you know, obviously it wasn't a magnum opus and the piece itself wasn't expressing radically new or original set of ideas. But, you know, the the general thrust of, of the piece, which was, as you mentioned, it was in the September print issue of National Review. It was a, a feature piece in, I think, the first September issue of National Review was essentially to make, first of all, to, to set up a conservative philosophical framework to argue for why environmentalism and conservation are things that can and should be understood as conservative values, right? Because obviously in the American context in particular, there's been for a few decades now a a disconnect between the environmentalist community and conservatives. And the the point that I was trying to make on like a first principles basis in in that piece is just to argue that, you know, environmentalism can and should be understood as fundamentally conservative, right? I I think that conservatism and and environmentalism often stem from the same basic impulse, which is this desire to conserve and protect the things that we love about our communities. So it was was trying to make a case for for the sort of reuniting of the conservative impulse or the disposition and the conservationist impulse or disposition. And from that sort of philosophical framework that I was hoping to establish, it was making the case to contemporary conservatives that, you know, hey, this environmentalist thing is actually something that we need to be plugged into because for the last couple of decades, at least we, you know, traditionally have not seen it as something that, that is a value that should be part of the sort of conservative worldview or the conservative political movement and included along with that. One of the valuable points that I wanted to make in the article was to distinguish conservative environmentalism or the sort of conservative approach to environmentalism and the worldview that underlies it from progressive or left-wing environmentalism and the worldview that drives that. And the reason I wanted to do that was sort of twofold. It was one that I think oftentimes conservatives, their sort of instinctual negative reaction to environmentalism is because they see it as part of this larger sort of progressive agenda that they are opposed to. Uh, And secondly, because I, I think you know, it's useful to make that distinction because it leads sometimes to different outcomes. And I think, you know, the progressive approach to environmentalism, obviously it's, it's, it has important things to tell us, but I also think that the conservative perspective in the environmentalist movement is really important and often leads to a sort of a different view of how we sort of collectively 
nurture and conserve our environment. Um, so that was, you know, the general approach that I, that I wanted to, to outline in that piece. And, you know, I was, I was really lucky that the National Review was, was, uh, interested in, in publishing it as a feature piece in their, in their print issue. And, um, you know, since then it's the, the sort of the reception has been largely positive and I've had a lot of really interesting conversations with people on, on both the left and the right about it. So yeah, I was really excited about the whole sort of endeavor. Well, there's a lot to follow up on there. And there's three things I like to follow up on. We'll see if we get to all of them. One is the, that framework. What is the framework? Then two, use the word distinguish, I think, or make distinct. I was thinking the word was disentangle of the progressive side. And I think everyone would agree that there's a lot of overlap. And nobody wants mercury in their fish. And I don't think that's not like a left-right thing. And yet, it's very hard for people to talk to each other. And so I think that distinction is very important, but very hard for people to get. And then also to go in more detail, of like what the follow-ups were with the conversations that came of it. I'm curious to start with the framework. And was it new to people? Was it difficult for you to put together? Or was it very obvious? I could see it going either way or different ways. Yeah. I mean, I think obviously on, on a sort of basic level, because conservatism and environmentalism are still relatively estranged from one another, it is a new idea or it, it comes across as new to a lot of people. For people in sort of my very, very small insular corner of the political world who are both conservatives and are really invested in environmentalism, it's, I was saying things that we had been talking about for you know a decade. Uh, but I think for the average National Review reader who came across the piece or, or read the piece, it was expressing some new and original ideas. So that, you know, I think is, is a virtue in and of itself of, of the piece. The framework I was fundamentally arguing for is that you know, conservation, when you think about it, is an inherently conservative impulse. Now, that doesn't mean that everyone who's a conservationist has to be sort of subscribed to the tenets of political conservatism as sort of the activist movement conservatism as it manifests in the United States. But it means that, you know, when you think about conservatism on a sort of pre-political dispositional level, right? And, and this is specifically applies to sort of social conservatism, but there's a, there's a way it manifests as sort of a, an economic or fiscal conservatism too in the United States. It's the desire, it's the identification, first of all, of the things that we want to protect, the things that we love, the things that we're grateful for in our inherited environment or community, and then a sort of political program to go about conserving those things which is not the same thing as as sort of stubbornly resisting all change, but it's sort of stewardship. It's understanding that there are changing circumstances and trying to approach those circumstances in a way that first and foremost prizes protecting the things that we love about our community and we, that we want to pass down to future generations so that they can have them as well. So in politics, in, in America, that means a conservation of sort of our constitutional system of limited government, a more or less a free market economic system, you know, the wide sphere of pluralism and individual liberties. And then on the social side, you know, our Judeo-Christian moral inheritance. But the case I'm making is that there is a, an environmental side to that too, right? One of the things that makes America so exceptional, in my opinion, is our natural inheritance. There's no country really in the world quite like America in terms of the vast expanses of wild, wide open spaces that we have. I'm a child of of the West, particularly in Oregon, right? And this is something that's really, really profoundly important to me and my own development specifically. So that to me seems like a natural part of conservatism, you know, insofar as conservatism is that disposition that we've talked about. And it seems like it was missing from the conservative movement, at least as it's manifested in, in, in modern moments. And I was basically making the case that you know, it's irrational to leave that part out. You know, if we're talking about conservatism as 
protecting America, you know, which we love. So that's, that was sort of the, the basic point I was making. And that to me seems, you know, like it should be relatively unobjectionable, at least before you actually get to the sort of nuts and bolts policy debates where things become much more controversial. You know, some of the things that many people see as controversial, I don't know if you got to listen to my episode with Bob Inglis, whom I think we've talked about that you, you know him, right? Yeah, of course. And he was talking about what, what a lot of people call, say, I don't even want to say the words, but I'll say it because that's what most people say. It's like carbon tax. Mm-hmm. To me, this is an issue of accounting. It's if you have a business, any business person knows that if the sales team starts racking up a whole bunch of costs, but you account them to HR, you're probably going to go bankrupt. You're not going to know how to run your company. And if you don't account for, you know, if someone makes something out of plastic that someone else has to clean up and doesn't get paid for, businesses that that I, I think everybody would agree ought to be bankrupt or at least would have to change their strategy drastically to stay in business, will stay in business and may succeed very well. Whereas things that ought, that ought to succeed won't succeed. And to me, it's a matter of, of effective accounting. This is one of the things that seems very important to me that I guess this ties into the disentangling as well, because some people really want to tax. And to me, it's more like if it's framed in, 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 in a way, I mean, Bob was like, yeah, I really like how you said that. And it seemed, it seemed obvious to me. I don't know that many people who work on sustainability who have MBAs mm-hmm. that I do. But it's, to me, it's just like it was a natural, until I said it to someone else, it didn't even occur to me that didn't, people didn't think of it that way. Right. Yeah. And it's like you said, that does get a little bit to what I think are some of the important distinctions between the base place that, say, left-wingers and right-wingers might approach the environmentalist movement and the environmentalist impulse, right? Like the conservative approach, I argue, to environmentalism comes from a, the sort of conservative disposition, right? The pre-political love of your community and desire to preserve it that we talked about. But also I think from this, this sort of place of fiscal responsibility, right? Or, or general sort of prudence and responsibility, right? Which is that this is an issue. It's like, you know, keeping your, your books balanced, right? I mean, it's the same basic idea of prudence, sort of common sense, right? You know, the, just sort of dotting, dotting your I's and crossing your T's, which for a lot of sort of traditional conservatives, at least in the Anglo-American context, that's the job of government, right? The job of government isn't to pursue these vast transformative schemes. You know, you leave that type of stuff to civil society. The job of government is basically the neutral umpire who, you know, crosses the T's and dots the I's and leaves the rest to the sort of the self-governing people. For a lot of progressives, the approach to climate change is often, not always, but often seen as part of this larger sort of uh, transformative endeavor where, you know, a progressive might support something like a carbon tax as part of a larger plan to sort of overcome capitalism, right? Or any other number of sort of things that progressives often uh, feel um, a certain amount of antipathy towards. And it's, you know, climate change is seen as a symptom often of a larger problem, which is often something approximating capitalism, uh, not always, but often. And therefore, you know, what we're ultimately trying to do is solve this larger systemic problem, not just correct for an, a sort of a, a side effect of, of what is a fundamentally a good system, which I think is how conservatives approach it. So those are pretty radically different starting points. It doesn't mean that we can't find a lot of common ground to cooperate on. I think that there are pl- certainly places where we can, but that is fundamentally a distinction. Yeah. Talk about common ground. One of the visions that I have is, and I forget if I told you this last time, but traffic laws. I would I envision one day environmental laws to be like, like no one sits at a traffic light, at a red light, and says, oh, some bureaucrat has, is keeping me from going where I want to go. Or no one looks at a double yellow line and says, 
my freedom is, is being impinged on that I can't cross this WL line. We, we don't cross the WL line, even if we are in a rush, because we know what could happen if we do. And I imagine that somewhere down the road, we can dismiss this as, as like a, a, a we must beat the other guy issue and see, we'll have plenty of things, you know, when human life begins and things like that, where we can clash without figuring out common ground. But on this one, it feels like there's a lot of common ground. And I wonder if you envision that we could see things like, is, is a transition to seeing environmental regulation like traffic laws? Yeah. Well, I think sort of ideally there is like sort of the, our politics viewed in a vacuum, right? From a purely sort of rational, sort of cold removed standpoint, there rationally should be a lot of common ground if you take sort of the conservative and the progressive ideology as at sort of face value, right? It's like, well, there's all these crossovers where, you know, you should be able to cooperate. You know, the problem is that that's, you know, politics isn't always a sort of cold, rational, reasonable enterprise, right? It involves all types of irrational partisan emotions and, you know, sort of opposition to this or that, or, you know, ambitions that have nothing to do with a particular issue. So there is both sides to a certain extent bear a certain amount of blame, I think, for the reason that we haven't found that common ground yet, right? So the conservative side bears a lot of blame for just refusing to think of climate change as an issue in the first place because it's seen as a left-wing issue. The left or the progressive side bears some blame for refusing to think of climate change often as a narrow question of reducing carbon emissions and always wanting to connect it to a larger transformative endeavor, right? The Green New Deal is the most recent iteration of this, but it wasn't the first iteration of that impulse. So, you know, the way that I would like it if we approach climate change, where I think we could build this really broad electoral base, is thinking of it in terms of the sort of conservative view of government as a a referee who calls balls and strikes, who administers impartial rules of the game, and then, you know, takes his hands off and doesn't actually try to involve himself in the game and pick winners and losers. And that's why carbon tax is so attractive. The problem is, you know, that's not how politics works uh, to a certain extent. And I think progressives will have a lot of difficulty sort of taking that view of government because in many ways they're constitutionally opposed to that view of government and conservatives, you know, have their own sort of irrationalities and eccentricities. So that doesn't mean that we can't get to a better place where we're closer to that ideal, but I think it's certainly an ideal to be reached for it's not a place that we're ever going to totally get, but we can make a lot of progress in the right direction and certainly you know, forward the cause of bipartisan environmentalism in a big way in the coming years. I'm confident that that certainly is something that can happen. You know, Just look at the recent stimulus bill, for example, that had an amazing win for the environmentalist cause. But yeah, that the sort of ideal of bipartisan cooperation of this view of governments as just sort of impartial, rational rules, that's never going to completely be reached as much as it, it might make sense in our minds abstractly for it to be the, the right way to do things. One of the things that you haven't mentioned on, I mean, there's billionaires on both sides funding things. It seems to me, and I haven't really looked into this in a whole lot of detail, but it seems to me that on the right, there's probably a lot of people whose fortunes come from, and therefore political power and voice comes from burning fossil fuels more than on the left. And so there's rationality and then there's, but there's also a lot of self-interest that I could see a lot of people, maybe even in principle, they might agree, but you know what they say, it's hard for people to change their mind when they're, I don't know the quote, you know, when they're, when their income depends on, they're not changing their mind. Yeah. It's, um, I can't remember the the guy who's the quote is from, but it's, uh, it's very difficult for a man to, uh, to get a man to see something when his entire income depends on him not seeing that it that way. Something. Yeah. And I see more people, my gut tells me that there's more people on the right 
whose assets and, and income come from burning fossil fuels or creating chemicals that, that get dumped, which is not to say it doesn't happen on the left also. I mean, it, it kills me the number of people on the left. And studies show that they, you know, people who talk green in America don't really emit less themselves. And so anyway, that's a separate issue. But that's an issue that I, I, I imagine would pop up on the, on the right mm-hmm. of people who might even in their guts feel a sense of agreement, but also be like, mm, maybe you can do it after I die and then do it or something like that. Yeah, I think that's generally as a sort of idiom still holds or as an axiom still holds true. The Trump era and populism has complicated all of these distinctions to a certain extent, right? You know, Biden received more Wall Street donations than Trump did by like five to one or something and, and received far more super PAC money. Hillary did in 2016 as well. So the sort of big business, big corporation coalition traditionally being a conservative constituency is not, it, that's sort of breaking down and you're seeing a sort of neoliberal center-left Democrat become the sort of uh, ideal of many ways of, of, of corporate power compared to the Republican Party. And the Chamber of Commerce has started endorsing Democrats instead of Republicans in some races too, right? So there's, you know, and that's largely because of immigration debates and whatnot, right? But there's the sort of populism and, and, and right-wing populism specifically have complicated the relationship between the Republican Party and big business, uh, certainly. Uh, that's not to say that what you're saying isn't still generally true. I think it probably is, but it's changing and it's trending in the other direction. And, you know, how that shakes out in coming years, I'm not totally sure. But certainly, I think big oil and the sort of fossil fuel companies are still very much more a constituency of the Republican Party than the Democratic Party for for obvious reasons. And that, you know, that's a real issue that sort of those of us who are on the right and care about the environment have to contend with. Now, with that being said, energy companies and fossil fuel companies, you know, with the obvious sort of caveat that they deserve a lot of blame for the, the mess that we're in in terms of climate change, also, I'm convinced, are going to be the the way out for us in a lot of important ways, right? I mean, no one is spending more on renewable energies right now than Shell and ExxonMobil. No industry employs more environmentalists than the fossil fuel industry does for a variety of different reasons. And, you know, these companies see what's coming down the pike, right? They, they know and have known for a long time that, you know, oil and, and, and burning fossil fuels is not a sustainable long-term plan for them. Um, and that they need to sort of lead on innovation and clean energy um, and development of these alternative sources of energy if they want to just be sustainable in terms of sort of economic nuts and bolts uh, in the future. And that's, you know, a reason for optimism, I think, on, on one level, even if it's, there's going to be sort of a, a lot of pain on our way to, to getting there, because, you know, this is, uh, this is why I I'm very much believe that the sort of f- the free market approach is largely the way to go on climate, because those companies are much, much more sort of better positioned to actually create the innovative technology and practices that we need to transition us to a clean energy, fossil fuel free future than than government bureaucrats are. That doesn't mean government doesn't have a role to play. It, It does. But, you know, in general, I think that a lot of these companies aren't quite the sort of uh, evil supervillains, at least not anymore, that they're made out to be by the environmentalist left. In many ways, they are going to be, like it or not, uh, our saviors in an important sense. And that's something to be cognizant of. Have you personally hit up against any resistance coming from that direction yet? Or I don't want to say yet, but maybe it'll never happen. You mean uh, resistance coming specifically from sort of corporate, sort of fossil fuel corporations? I haven't, no. Yeah. Now, I've heard about you know, specifically in, it's honestly, it's more from sort of like conservative 
donor groups and conservative sort of advocacy groups that have an ideological opposition to the idea of climate change than it is really from fossil fuel companies. So the the obvious recent example is when Kevin McCarthy, the sort of leader of the of the House Republicans, put forward this very modest sort of Republican climate bill back in 2018, I think, that involved things like, you know, growing a, a trillion trees, right? You know, pretty modest investments, but making the right noises in moving the Republican Party in the right direction on climate change. The Club for Growth, which is a famous sort of conservative libertarian pro-business, pro-growth, big conservative donor pack, denounced him and said, you know, anyone who supports McCarthy's bill is a socialist and won't be endorsed by the Club for Growth. It was ridiculous, you know, and it was purely based on sort of ideological partisanship and just this sort of idea that because the left cares about climate change, we don't care about climate change. And anyone who does care about climate change is a socialist. But that's not because the Club for Growth necessarily had any real economic interests in that bill not getting passed. They didn't. It had nothing to do with business. It was because the Club for Growth was sort of of this old, sort of older ideological right-wing resistance to the idea of anthropogenic climate change as an issue. And that manifested in this really silly way. And I think that's much more often what conservative environmentalist activists are running into in actual resistance from fossil fuel companies that are lobbying against this or that measure. Because the fossil fuel companies are more or less you know, on the front lines of a lot of this, right? They, they're up to date on, on that stuff. They're not really necessarily lobbying against it anymore, to my knowledge, at least. That's unfortunate they would have that knee-jerk reaction because I, from a leadership perspective, that would put the other group as being the leader and then being, if you're just reacting reflexively, you're just reacting, it's not leading. Yeah. And there's a ton of things I want to keep following up on there. But one thing that you talked about earlier, and I think is very relevant in terms of getting these companies to change, which is you talked about ethics and morality and values. And one of the things that longtime listeners of my podcast will note that I've, I've brought on a lot more conservatives and evangelicals onto the podcast. And one of the main reasons is that when I talk to them, their motivation for wanting to act is much more from an emotional standpoint like mine. It's a joy, like this feeling of service, of duty, of honor, as opposed to a feeling of obligation a feeling of, of burden that we have to do this. You know, one of my phrases now is I don't, I don't have to steward, I get to steward. And I think that that's something that is partly on the left, I think is really, they're not, I don't think they're intending this. I don't think they're intending to sound like they're hitting you hard with guilt and shame and ignorance and maybe even stupidity. But it, I can see if I, if I try to empathize with a hardcore Republican, I, that's what I would feel coming from them. Yeah, But I think that there's a huge opportunity for what I think would, if it catches, and I think it will catch. One of the reasons I'm talking to you now is, is in the hopes that it will help get it to catch, which is a feeling of personal joy and personal, not responsibility like I have to, but responsibility like stewardship, like taking care of your child, this helpless, beautiful creature, this, this gift. And am I on track to think that that's something that could conceivably like flip over on the conservative side to be like, this is a beautiful land. This is the beautiful gift that we have. And I personally want to do it. I don't care what they say, if they're trying to make me feel guilty or whatever. That's not the issue. It's my community. It's my home. It's my land. It's anyway, am I onto something there? Because I haven't seen it yet. Yeah. Yeah. Well, what you're describing is, is fundamentally, and you're describing it very articulately, is sort of the ideal of what civil society and what local community is for the conservative, right? I mean, for the conservative or for, for at least sort of my, my genre of conservative, I'll speak for myself, you know, the sort of local community 
right? The family, the small little platoon, what Edmund Burke called the little platoon, you know, the, the, these sort of small local attachments that, that you belong to in society that you're deeply committed to in the ways that you're, you're describing in a sort of pre-rational, pre-political sense, right? It's a love is, is fundamentally sort of not something that's always rational, rationally explainable in terms of sort of logic or mathematical equation, right? Those connections to our family, our local church, our little league, our community, our local park, right? All of those things, that is what forms the very basis of human flourishing, right? And it, the conservative sort of affinity for, for limited government, for example, is based on what I think is a very profound understanding of the fact that sort of a, a faraway government bureaucracy can never create that sense of community in the ways that sort of local communities can. And that roots and a sense of place and a commitment to one another come from this direct sort of a tactile experience with one another, much more than it does with sort of an abstract plan imposed by an executive bureaucracy. So that is, I, I think, fundamentally the ideal of what a conservative wants to see in civil society. And environmentalism, you know, can and should be a big part of that because it's 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 consistent with everything that you just described, you know. Whether or not that's going to sort of flip and happen overnight is obviously an open question. I would love it if it did. I tend to think, you know, it's probably going to be a sort of slower movement in that direction if, if we're successful as sort of slowly budging the ball forward and getting uh, sort of conservatives to, to take, take this idea more seriously. But, you know, that is fundamentally, I think, the reason that this is a sort of a conservative thing. And this, that's the point that I was making in my National Review article too, right, is that it is or it should come from this place of love, right? Of gratitude, of, of, of a desire to, to sort of take care of and steward the things that you love because you love them, right? Not because of some abstract sense of, you know, justice or equality or any of these abstract ideas, but just, you know, you don't have to explain it. It's because you love, you know, the sort of the what you love walking in the park next to your house with your child, right? And you want your child's child to be able to walk in that park too, right? That should be enough. And that is a very, a much more powerful motivator, I think, in something like environmentalism, right? In trying to create a better universalist environmentalist ethic in our society than sort of abstractions or, or government mandates or whatnot. And I, I think that should be the sort of the goal we're reaching towards. But there is a long way to go before that's sort of instantiated in an actionable way in the, the hearts of the American people writ large, I think. That's not to say that I, I don't think people of all political stripes in America have a deep commitment to their local environments. They do. The challenge is to sort of, uh, you know, specifically in the context of climate change, to find a way to marshal that sort of that instinct, which I think exists for people from the reddest districts and the bluest districts. It's a, it's a deeply human instinct in terms of this collective commitment to sort of common sense climate measures, you know, in terms of, of policy, as well as in terms of local behavior. If you like the show, I recommend acting as my guests do. It works best with someone supportive, your spouse, parents, kids, neighbors, or friends. Learn the four-step process I do with my guests and describe in my TEDx talks and do it together. You'll find yourself acting on something you care about, something meaningful. Whether you start big or small doesn't matter. If you care, if it's meaningful, you'll keep doing it. You'll reach big. Eventually, stewardship will feel normal. You'll wish you had started earlier. Second, I recommend donating to help this podcast at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. I promote degrowth and stewardship, which no advertiser will touch, but brings joy, community, connection, and abundance to you when you act and global change in the long run. 
Help us keep going. That's joshuaspodek.com slash donate. I heard what you said, and I, I still am harboring this belief that it's going to flip like, a, so. like a, in physics language, it'd be like a phase change. Yeah. Until I started getting, you know, the word steward was barely in my vocabulary until I went to West Point and was speaking to, you know, they're generally conservative people there, the, uh, certainly the, the heads of the departments. And there's just no other word like it. It's just it, what people want in spirituality or religion or community, this, this oneness, this connection to us all that, as you mentioned, happens on a community and family level, but also happens on a human level you know, across the whole planet. And I don't see anyone really tapping into that like we could. Individuals do, but I don't see leaders doing it yet. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think the ability to really tap into that is, is what defines a great leader right? The greatest statesmen of the Western tradition, at least, are people who have been able to marshal that sense of, of obligation, mutual obligation to one another and uh, sort of moral commitments to your fellows, you know, at a local level, at a, at a national level, sometimes at a transnational level, although that's, that's less likely and less feasible. But, you know, I think it will not surprise, I think, anyone to, to hear that there, there is a defect of good leadership and good statesmanship at the moment, especially on the national level. And, you know, this is clearly a place where a really effective leader could do an enormous amount of good in, in this area. Whether or not that's we'll get, I think, is, is very much an open question. But it is, I, I think, you know, the, the leaders of movements here um, and the way we talk about these issues can be really effective in important ways. Do you mind if I walk you? Th- I forget if I told you the, the process I walk people through on my podcast of, of sharing a value and acting on it. I'm not sure. Yeah, go, go for it. I'll give you a shot and we can edit it out if it doesn't go well. The environment is something important to you, I take it. Mm-hmm. When you act, when you do stuff on the environment, what motivates you? What do you think about when you think about the environment? Well, for me, I mean, that's, that's, it's pretty easy. I mean, for me, it's, it's, it's fundamentally a love of country. I, I've said this before. I don't want to be redundant, right? But I, I, I love America. I think that this is the greatest country in the history of the world. And I think, you know, not the exclusive reason for that, but but a significant reason for me, nonetheless, is the land that we come from. You know, it's not a, a sort of blood and soil argument. Obviously, you know, that's actually in in many ways the blood and soil argument is profoundly un-American and contrary to like the fundamental character of what America is and always has been. But it is in many ways the American mind and the way that Americans think about ourselves, the way that we relate to one another, and the way that we think about our role in the world, even has fundamentally been formed by the spirit and the character of our land. The Wild West, when you think about it, and the idea of a frontier extending out outwards for the first you know, 200 years or so of, of American history, that's a really unique idea that hadn't really existed, at least in Western history before. And it, you know, our poetry, you know, the, of Walt Whitman, our, our political philosophy, the possibility of small R Republican freedom being something that exists because if you don't like the way that government's doing you know, in one place, you can just move out West and then you can do what you want, right? You know, like there's everything about America in, in, in some fundamental ways that I don't think we think about a lot uh, has been formed by this beautiful land that we've inherited. And, uh, you know, certainly the, the sort of rugged character, I think, of the sort of do-it-yourself, you know, commitment to this sort of optimistic can-do attitude that Americans have that distinguish us in many ways from, you know, a lot of Europeans that I've met, for example. I, I lived in Europe for high school and, uh, I love Europe, but it's it's a very different attitude towards the world. So this is all, you know, I'm rambling, but it's it's fundamentally for me about seeing that what we have is good here and wanting to 
make sure that that persists and wanting to preserve it because I think that it is in many ways um, what has made this country so unique in, in so many important ways. So for me, it's, it's a patriotic impulse. It's an impulse to try to take the things that we love and that we're grateful for, um, recognizing why we're grateful for them, and then trying to make sure that our, our kids have the same or better even access to them. Um, and that's what stewardship is too, I think. I'm curious when you talk about the land and you referred to, I think, you're, I think you referred to when you were growing up in the West, I think Pacific Northwest, did you say Oregon? Mm-hmm. And I think everyone has a view of the land but their view is unique. And I'm curious, are there like scenes, are there memories, are there experiences that drove this? Because I'm sure there are people near you who had different experiences, even though they're in the same place or people yeah. who come to similar yeah. values from a different, you know, maybe they're by the ocean or something. Is there something that comes to mind, like images or experiences or memories that? Yeah. I mean, there's a lot of things that come to mind, right? And to a certain extent, you know, everyone's experience is individual in important senses. None of us have a completely same experience of the land. But when I was growing up, you know, my parents lived in Portland and we had this tiny little cabin, no electricity, you know, built out of wood way, way on the outskirts of, um, uh, it was, you know, it was outside of sisters, Oregon, which is a tiny little town deep in the, in the sort of Oregon woods with the ponderosa pines, which are these massive trees that I remember my whole family, my little brother, my mom, my dad, uh, and I would, we stretch around the tree and we, you know, each put our arms around, our arms around to hug it. And we could just barely get around some of these really big, you know, century old trees. A family of tree huggers. Exactly. Yeah. Literally we were tree huggers. Um, but I mean, that sort of, uh, I, I think those are some of my first memories are there, for example, right. And the vastness of this gigantic forest, especially when you're a little kid, right. This sort of hundred year old tree that's so massive and you look up and you can't see the top. It looks like it goes up into the sky forever, right. That's pretty powerful. And not to mention that that was sort of the ultimate playground for me and my little brother and my friends who used to go up there. And, you know, that, as I said, having your first memories in places like that have a, have a profound effect on you. And Oregon is, is, you know, full of places like that, which are really magical as a kid. And I think that sort of inherent youthful magic of childhood, right? Where the, your entire world is sort of a playground is made all the more vivid by the existence of those really, really special places and these quiet places, right? Where you are removed in some ways from the, the sort of impatience of modern developed civilization. Uh, and it's, it's so important, I think, just to, for the sort of spiritual core of who we are as a people to preserve these quiet places where time stops. And you can sort of briefly catch a glimpse of the eternal, which I think is, especially for a young person, uh, is particularly vivid. You know, as much as I love cities, I've, you know, lived in cities for a large portion of my life, you know, that's, we have removed ourselves from a sort of important aspect of the human condition, uh, which is that which becomes most visible to us in these quiet, empty spaces. One of the beautiful things about America is that it's still filled with these quiet, empty, beautiful spaces where we can encounter beauty. And I think, Preserving that for our children is essential in important ways. I have to say that, I mean, you started by saying every, everyone's experience is unique. And when you're describing the, the details of the Ponderosas and the looking up, at first I was thinking, all I have is like National Geographic pictures. And I'm sure that doesn't even come close to the experience. But, you know, I grew up in Philadelphia. So, you know, we'd every now and then go on the Appalachian Trail or to much older mountains with much smaller trees. And yet the feeling of the eternal, you know, that, that brief glimpse of the eternal, it was very vivid as you said that. So based on what you said about the, that, that feeling, the connection to the eternal, the wanting future generations to have it, that child's 
that connection that you had, I invite you, and this is at your option. If, if you don't want to do it, that's fine. But I invite you to think of something to do that you could do to act on those feelings in today. And now a lot of people, they hear something that I, I want to clarify something I'm not saying. I'm not saying what's the biggest thing you could do or the most important thing or what Greenpeace says that you should do, or it will affect the world, but that's not the point. It's to act on what you care about. And I've asked a lot of people this. So I've learned three things that make it very uh, constraints that help. Something new that you're not already doing, something that is that you do yourself. I have all these leaders on and they're always like, oh, you know, I'll get my team to do this. But it's something that you do with your hands. And something physical, not just reading or raising awareness, but something that has an effect on the world. And most people, it takes them a second to come up with something or sometimes going back a few times. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a really important question. I think you know, this might be in violation of, of some of the sort of requirements of this particular thing and that it might not be completely new or it might not be completely with my hands. But I think one thing that I want to do which is not new in the sense that it's a radical break with what I've been doing, but is a, a sort of continuation or a furthering of what I've started doing, you know, in, in the last couple of years is building a really rich sense of the importance of environmentalism in conservative spaces and conservative institutions. You know, right now I'm working for a sort of bipartisan institution, which is the citizens climate lobby. And I love it, you know, but I'm not going to be here forever. Right. You know, I'm, I'm still in college uh, and I'll probably go off and work at some conservative institution after college. And I think, you know, the really crucially important work for me there vis-a-vis me caring about the environment is doing the work from within those institutions to not just lessen resistance to the idea of anthropogenic climate change as an issue, but ultimately actually build a sort of environmentalist movement from within those. And there's a variety of different ways to do that. And, and you know, I, I will encounter plenty of challenges, I think, as well, that I probably can't foresee right now. But that, I think, is something that I want to really lean into in the future is to, from within, uh, sort of build a conservative environmentalist movement in the most powerful conservative or, or right-wing institutions in America, um, because that will ultimately not me alone doing this, but me and a lot of other like-minded people doing this will ultimately, I think, have a really profound effect on environmentalist politics in the United States as it stands today. Well, I applaud that. That would be something where you're leading others to do things. I think, would, I think this would actually augment that, although that wouldn't be necessarily the goal of it, but it would be something like a project that you did earlier or now, that something where you acted on this Tree hugging stuff. I don't want to say tree hugging because I, I, I don't want to, that has too many connotations I'm not trying to, to bring up. But this outdoorsiness, this, uh, this connection to the eternal, is there something you could do connecting with that or making more of that or decreasing its decrease? Well, I guess I, um, you know, maybe I'm misunderstanding exactly what, what you're saying, but I, I think that this is uh, in important senses, or at least could in important senses be part of that. Oh, it right? would be. Where you are. That would be a different. This is something where you would do something yourself, where you you affect the world. You well, okay. To me, that that seems like that's something that I am doing, right? Is it something that I, you know, me, uh, you know, in in a variety of different senses, building something is something that I'm doing. Maybe maybe I'm misunderstanding exactly what you're asking, though. Yeah, one of the things that drove this strategy of mine, this tactic of mine, is that people are very quick to say, I'm going to get other people to do stuff. Right. And I, I, as a leader, as a professor of leadership, that's a very important thing for me. And I think that's very important. To clarify, I don't think that I, that's the first and foremost, what I was proposing before is me getting other people to do stuff, right? I, I wouldn't have a team to boss around. It would be me doing things like the article that I wrote, for example, but also building on that um, and, and you know, building 
sort of not only doing the advocacy stuff, right, which involves writing, going on podcasts like this to talk about stuff, but also building sort of physical communities um, in which I am interacting with people, right, and, and interacting with the world and, and trying to create a sort of momentum that moves the ball in the right direction, right? It's not me telling people to, to do stuff. It's me, myself, sort of uh, uh, making a, what I would like to think is a difference in terms of, um, of sort of an environmentalist movement writ large. These are very important things and I applaud them and I support them. And I, I don't want to take away from those things, but they're slightly different than what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is to, um, I, I'll, I'll give examples for me. For me, avoiding packaged food for a week was like a dramatically changing experience for me that it's reduced my waste by a lot and has connected me with my farmers. It's connected me with my family and it's connected me with the people who I give my compost to and things like that, that in ways I never could have expected and only doing it could have led to it or that I pick up a piece of garbage every day. Well, now that's led to more, which coincidentally has led to a Senate campaign, uh, a mayoral campaign, not mayoral, a city council campaign. People contacted me like, oh, you do this. We want to learn from you. And now those come from my values, which are different than your values, or rather I should say my experiences, which are different than yours. And I find that when people come up with something from their own experience, heart, it affects them in a way that they couldn't have predicted in the way that learning from experience as opposed to uh, reading and writing and talking don't, not to say those modes aren't valid, aren't important as well. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a really good question. And it's the, the sort of, I guess the obvious rejoinder would be to do something like what you're doing, which is to try to attempt to buy more, you know, eat more local or try to sort of uh, forego foods like avocados, for example, or, or, or almonds or whatnot, which have an enormous environmental impact. I would have to, I mean, the, to, to give you a more pro, sort of profan, profound answer that ha- has to do more with this, my sort of specific values, I think is, is, is not something that I, I could really come up with on the spot, but it's an important question that I, I think is, it's an important one to raise beyond, you know, what I feel like I'm doing already, having a sort of more individualistic uh, sort of um, approach to to the issue. Like I, I think what you're talking about is, yeah, it's something I'd have to think about. Yeah, I, I know that we're running, we're, we have four minutes left before you have to go. Normally, if I go back and forth a couple of times, something comes out and I'm kind of, I don't think we have, it'll take probably a bit, like it'll take like 10 minutes, not four minutes. Mm-hmm. So I'm, I'm wondering if I should request maybe a second conversation or, uh, or just leave it at this. Yeah. It's up to you. I I'd have to, yeah. Like, like you said, I'd have to, um, I'd have to sort of ponder to a certain extent, you know, beyond, I think what you're doing, which is, is great. Something that, like you said, is more original to, to me. Yeah. Something coming from, it doesn't have to be original, but something that comes from your heart that uh, comes from your experience. Mm -hmm. I guess based on the limited time I would propose if you're up for it, to do like a short 10 minute follow-up to this and somehow my editor will like stick it together. So it'd be seamless. Mm-hmm. Would you be game for that? Yeah, sure. The next week or so is, is tough, but I think uh, after that, I, we could definitely set up a time. All right. So I'll let you go. Cause I don't want you to be late. I once made a rule yeah. for myself. I never want people to feel like, ah, Josh got me late to something. No, no. Yeah. I appreciate that. So I will talk to you in a week and a half, I guess. Sounds good. Talk then. All right. Great talking to you. All right. Talk to you soon. See you, Josh. Bye. How many people are bringing a message of joy from what everyone calls saving the environment, but I call the future? Step by step, this podcast is creating a culture of joy, community, and connection around sharing and acting on our environmental values. Again, there's no profit in buying and wasting less, but we'll all love our lives and relationships more when we do. I can use your support. 
please donate at joshuaspodick.com slash donate. Again, that's joshuaspodick.com slash donate.